Uh, this morning, we're starting, we're continuing our sermon series on the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And we said a while back in our background on this letter that Ephesus was a highly strategic international city. It was located on the main route between Europe and Asia, and uh, it's located in modern-day Turkey. When Paul boldly preached that Christ, and not Caesar, because this is the Roman Empire, and not the Greek goddess Diana or Artemis, whose temple was located in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, when Paul boldly preached that Jesus Christ was alone Lord, that was a direct challenge to the political and religious power structures that were in place in Ephesus. This is not a, um, a mild-mannered kind of message that he shares. This is a direct challenge. And in the first part of chapter 1, Paul laid out the foundation of Christianity, talking about every spiritual blessing that is ours because the Father sent and sacrificed His one and only Son, the, the Son uh, spilt His blood to redeem His people, and the Holy Spirit is given as assurance and because of all that spiritual treasure, verse 15, transitions to a more personal tone, because of what I've just said, Paul says, I constantly give thanks to God for you, and I constantly pray to God about you. The question we're taking a few Sundays to answer is, what is the content of Paul's passionate and unceasing prayer? We're going to look at just verses 17, 18, and 19 this morning. Listen carefully. These are God's words. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, that's our prayer as well, that what Paul prayed for the Ephesians would be given to us. So pour out Your Spirit on us in this place the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that we may know you better through this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we saw that verse 18 is really a parallel. It's really an emphasis of verse 17. Um, verse 18 puts it this way, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And we asked, well, how does that happen? Verse 17 has already said it, through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We need spiritual eyesight to see heavenly spiritual realities that merely physical eyesight can't detect. That comes through the spirit of revelation, uh, wisdom and revelation. Verses 17 and 18 are really emphasizing the same realities. In both verses, Paul's asking for Holy Spirit power, Holy Spirit influence in the lives of these people so that they might know God better. But in verse 18... He gets into more specifics in helping us understand how we know God better. And he uh, wants us to know hope, riches, and power. 
This morning, we'll just look at the first two and save the third one for another Sunday. First, hope. A few years ago, as many of you did, I read the book Unbroken. It's the true story of Louis Zamperini, who during World War II was in a B-24 bomber over the Pacific Ocean when it had engine trouble, lost both engines, crashed into the middle of the Pacific in the middle of nowhere, and Louis and two of his crewmates survived, floating for 47 days and drifting for 2,000 miles on two damaged inflatable life rafts. One crewmate named Mac dies after 33, year, uh, 33 days. Um, he's no worse for wear. He had the same access to food and water as Louis and Phil did. But Mac's problem was that from the very first moment of the crash and uh, climbing into the inflatable raft, Mac assumed they would die. Mac was freaking out. Mac was assuming the worst. And giving up hope took away his will to fight for life. This is what Louis said. Mac lost his vision of the future. He lost hope. But that wasn't the worst of their experience because um, once they were rescued by the Japanese army, they were thrown into a harsh prison camp and there to distract himself from the torture and the dehumanizing conditions that they were daily, uh, throughout the day, subjected to, Louis developed some mental strategies to help himself cope, like memorizing the names of the nine Marines whose names had been scratched into the wall of the pen that he was stuck in for hours at a time, men who had been beheaded before he got there. Louis said, I was determined to report those names to Allied headquarters when I got home. And this is what he wrote. It was my small way of keeping hope alive. In our context here today in the West, in the 21st century, especially here in Bergen County, we're not that desperate for hope because we have food on the table. We have shelter. We have a a real bed to lie down in. We have opportunities to succeed. But for prisoners of war fighting to survive hour after hour, struggling for daily dignity in the face of mental and physical torture, hope was as necessary as water to survive. Mac lost it and he died. Louis was determined to keep it, and he survived. Paul's prayer, as we said, starts with prayer for the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know God better. And what is it that Paul wants us to know about God? This is what he starts with, that you may know, verse 18, the hope to which He has called you. When he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's likely on death row and knows it. He knows he won't see any of his friends ever again, especially the Ephesians with whom he had spent more time in Ephesus than any other place of ministry. These are, if he has dear friends, these Ephesians are at the top of the list. And into the context, he... uh, In this context of persecution during the first century church, um, we're not talking about social media ridicule. 
We're not talking about people who think you're funny because you believe in God or um, look at you strange because you pray before meals. No, persecution in the first century, which Paul was experiencing, which the Ephesian church was experiencing, persecution meant imprisonment and torture and execution for many followers of Jesus Christ, especially if they were claiming that He alone, over and against Caesar in Rome, over and against uh, Diana or Artemis in Ephesus, that Jesus Christ alone was Lord. And into that context, Paul says, I am praying that you would know the hope to which God has called you. You need hope. When you're facing death by dehydration and roasting in the sun surrounded by sharks, you need hope. When you're tempted to lose your will for living because of the psychological and the physical torture which your captors are subjecting to you, uh, subjecting you to night and day, you need hope. When you're today, when your unemployment doesn't change, when your marital conflict only grows worse, when your chronic pain won't go away, when the situation in your life that you never dreamed would be the case at your age, at this stage of life, persists year after year, you need hope. The question is, hope of what? How does hope change anything that I'm struggling with? First, let me say the obvious. Hope is always future-oriented, right? Hope anticipates a reality that is not the case today. Hope hopes for something else. Now, some hope in our lives is wishful thinking kind of hope. You know, I hope one day to vacation for three weeks in Hawaii. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Uh, that kind of hope wishes and not, doesn't know whether it's ever going to happen. But biblical hope is very different. Biblical hope doesn't have fingers crossed behind uh, our backs. Biblical hope doesn't pray and, and, and just hope that God is tuned into our frequency and cares enough to, to listen and is powerful enough to answer and do something about it. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is sure, grounded confidence based on what has already happened in history, which is what? The foundation Paul laid in verses 3 through 14. The realities that the Father sent His one and only Son as a substitute in the place of His people. The reality that the, the Son claimed victory over death when He walked out of the tomb on the third day. The reality that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, has been given as a gift to everyone who believes in these realities. That's the foundation Paul has started with. That's the bedrock which he's laid down. That's why his prayer here, when he turns the corner and personally begins to minister to the Ephesians, his prayer is not wishy-washy. His prayer is not, gee, I hope this will happen, maybe, maybe not. No, his prayer is bold. He keeps asking that the spirit of wisdom and revelation may be given so that you may have knowledge of hope. You may trust in it more fully. You may deepen your understanding of what this hope fully involves. How does that offer a fix to the very real-life, down-to-earth problems that we face? We have to start with this 
other truth and affirm that every problem we encounter, every issue that we come, uh, come up against that is uh, dysfunctional and broken and messed up is a result, a direct result of the decaying, corrupting influence of sin. God made all things good and very good at creation. But the entrance of sin into the world, Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity we call it, it means that everything is pervasively impacted by sin such that it is not the way it's supposed to be. Not any longer at least. It's messed up. It's corrupted. It's decaying. And so dysfunctional relationships, crime, abuse, neglect, our physical bodies that experience pain, anything of thought, word, or action that is not of God, that it does not flow out of the revealed truth of His Word, that isn't according to His perfect will, requires the only solution, the only real source of hope, which is this, that the cross and the empty tomb open up the possibility, and more so than that, guarantee the reality of God's promise that He is at work and one day will finish making all things new. That's the promise of Revelation 21.5 at the end of history. That's the heart of biblical hope, future-oriented, not wishful thinking, but confidence that because of what has already happened, Jesus has conquered sin and death. Jesus has walked out of that tomb. Resurrection power is at work. God has promised that He will one day finish making all things new. That alone is what offers hope to the very real earthy challenges of our day-to-day existence. Jürgen Moltmann was a man drafted into the German army during World War II, and he faithfully served as a soldier But as the war was ending, or soon after the war ended, he was horrified, along with many of his country people, to learn what the German people under the leadership of the Third Reich had done to the Jews and had done to um, the disabled and other minority groups. He was horrified. And partly due to the influence of the confessing church, those Christians who had stood fast and resisted Um, Hitler's leadership, Jürgen Moltmann gave his life to Christ, and he decided to go to seminary and became a theologian, and one of his first books was called The Theology of Hope. And this is what Moltmann said about hope. He said, the lack of hope is sin because it rejects the fullness of God's promises. The lack of hope is sin That might sound like a stretch, except for the fact that the Apostle Paul would absolutely agree based on what he says in Romans chapter 14, the last verse of the chapter. Paul writes, everything that does not come from faith is sin. If you're not believing God in His promises, at His word, that He's good, it's sin. You either trust self or you trust God. Adam and Eve chose the former. They they chose to to believe that their own prerogative to choose what was best for their lives, to to gain the, the greatest joy and the highest pleasure involved eating of the fruit of the forbidden tree. They chose self over God. 
They distrusted him. They didn't believe him and his promises. That in the intimacy of relationship that they enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, that all of their um, needs and desires would be perfectly fulfilled. Either you hope in humanity, which we could say is the collective self, to provide greatest joy and lasting peace, or you trust in God, whose power alone can heal what's wrong with this world that is not the way it's supposed to be. The problem with hope that does not involve God is that death will always and eventually prove that source of hope absolutely wrong. The second part of knowing God in Paul's prayer is that you may know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in His holy people. When you come across that word inheritance, you naturally think, who's inheriting and how much? How much treasure is coming to the person? And the first part of the answer is good news to anyone who's wondering that, um, because the answer is yes, the people of God absolutely are promised a rich, abundant inheritance. The Apostle Peter in his first letter, first chapter, puts these first two objects of prayer together in one verse, uh, one idea. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Yes, the people of God stand to receive richly, but what's more surprising is that the focus of Paul's words here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 is actually the opposite side of the coin, which is that God values us as His inheritance. He's the one receiving, and the treasure He anticipates receiving is His holy people. In the fall, when we covered uh, verse 11 and talking about the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I shared that the phrase, in Christ we were also chosen, can also be translated, in Him we were made an inheritance. It can also be translated, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. The, the second idea is reinforced in verse 14, three verses later, which calls the people of God, God's possession. It's an echo of Exodus 19, God's treasured possession, something valuable in the eyes of God that He stands to inherit. If we ask the question, whose inheritance? The answer is God's and ours. There's no conflict, there's no tension in terms of picking, well, which translation is the most accurate, which one is the best when you translate Greek into English, because relationship makes these realities meld into one. This is what I shared back in the fall. Suppose Cedar, my wife, says to me, you are my greatest gift. And I know that's hard to believe. I find that hard to believe, but she's actually said that to me. And that means that I have been made an inheritance, option number two. I am, in her, in her words, in her mind, the gift that she stands to receive. But what if I say, no, 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 honey, you are my greatest gift. 
then option number three all of a sudden comes into play because I have obtained an inheritance. She is my greatest gift. I stand to receive the treasure in this relationship. How much more so does that human analogy expand in depth and beauty and fullness of love when it comes to God loving His people? Because in unity and intimacy of relationship, is there really any difference between being made an inheritance and receiving an inheritance? There's an, there's a, an outgiving, an outloving desire on the part of one and the other, which makes these distinctions blur. This is what every one of us was, in, was intended by God's design to enjoy with Him to be made an inheritance, God's possession, to obtain an inheritance, receive all that we have ever longed to receive in pure delight. Paul's prayer here is a prayer for deeper emotional and spiritual security. Paul is saying to the people, and Paul's saying to us today, I want you to know how beloved you are. I want you to know how precious you are in the sight of God. I want you to know that you are God's special treasured possession that he stands to inherit. Amazing truths, folks, that are so foundational to every aspect of our lives, not just the spiritual part of our lives. Why do I say that? Because so much brokenness comes from insecurity. So much brokenness comes from insecurity, not being grounded not being moored, anchored to something that will not move. That breeds all kinds of mess in our lives. Because without a deep security that can only be grounded through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I will constantly search for affirmation, and we won't find it. We will constantly fear rejection and tremble at the thought and shape our behaviors and words and thoughts accordingly to avoid rejection and to seek after approval. Without a deep security grounded in faith in Jesus Christ, you and I will chase after image and status. Sometimes that will lead to absolutely destructive things. Sometimes it will seem as innocent as obsessing over likes on social media because we crave that affirmation You and I will lash out. If we're not secure in Christ, we'll lash out when we're criticized. We'll invest enormous amounts of time and attention to make sure that we look just right. We act just right. We do the right things according to the values of the world around us. But here's where the greatest insecurity comes from. When we as sinners stand in the face of a holy God and properly feel a sense of shame and guilt, if we don't feel that, it's because we have a small view of God. He's not holy. He's not the judge of all the earth. If we don't feel that, it's because we pretend that we're far better than we really are. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But If salvation depends on your goodness, the question always becomes, how good have you been lately? And maybe you're on a winning streak. Maybe you've been especially pure and holy and moral and good and kind. But as soon as you falter, shame and guilt are not far behind. That breeds the deepest insecurity. What do we do? 
How do we get anchored, moored to something or someone that will not drift with the changing opinions of culture? The only real source of security comes through faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Parents, uh, you often worry about and go to great lengths to cultivate and build up self-esteem in your kids, right? And so very often, there, there are good things that can come from that, but l- listen to me. I'm going to ruffle some feathers. More often, perhaps I would even say most often, worrying about and working hard to build up your child's self-esteem is actually a destructive path that masks itself as an all-American good. That's the worst kind of danger. It's a Trojan horse kind of danger. It's something that you say, what's wrong with making my, my kid feel better about themselves? Grow in self-confidence. Be bolder. You know, think of themselves as talented and beautiful and kind and generous. What's, what could be possibly wrong with that? And, and that's the Kool-Aid that we drink in our culture, right? Build up your kid's self-esteem, You don't want your kid to be meek and mild and unsure of themselves and insecure, so you build up your... No, parents and adults alike, whether we're involved in any children's lives at all, self-esteem is spiritually dangerous because ultimately it is faith in self. It's placing your hope and security in self, in my abilities, in my intellect, in my looks, in my athletic abilities, in my artistic, musical talents. It is a security that will never give you. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a claim of security that will never give you what you're all after. It perhaps will give you a temporary high, a hit, if somebody affirms you tells you, you, you really are beautiful, you really are smart, you really are good on the ball field, then you'll be looking for more, for that same kind of high, and it will never satisfy. What should you pray for and cultivate in your children then? What should we adults be chasing after with all of our might, with our effort and on our knees in prayer? We should be looking to cultivate Christ-esteem, not self-esteem. We should be looking to ground our security and look to the future in our ultimate hope in what Christ has done, not in what we can do and accomplish. We we need to stand upon the rock, which is Christ, and know that all other ground is sinking sand and say to the judge on the last day, I have no answer, but Jesus is my righteousness. I have nothing in myself that could... uh, moor me to any kind of dock, uh, keep me in, in, from being blown this way and that by the, the winds of culture, but Jesus is my cornerstone. He is, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all around, other ground is sinking sand. Christ is rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That's my only answer. Jesus is my rock. What we need to cultivate in our children and in ourselves is a sure and confident belief, trust, leaning upon Christ's obedient and righteous life that was perfectly lived, that earned the Father's perfect approval, and that's mine because I believe in it. 
And we need to cultivate in our children and ourselves a sure and confident leaning upon his sacrificial death that was experienced in my place because of my sin. I deserve to be there. But the Father sent the Son to die in my place that I might be set free. And on that reality, I have sure, confident hope. And then, as we cultivate that, because we are in Christ, standing upon Him and not on ourselves, because we're united to Him, then the Father looks on the believer in Jesus Christ and pours out perfect acceptance, limitless love, absolute intimacy. Any other trust breeds insecurity and causes the mess in our lives. Paul knows this. And so he prays that you may know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in you. You are worth that much to the Father. Why? Not because you're spiritual and religious and you've done good things today or yesterday or the year before, but because he gave your own, his own son to pay the ultimate price and you are united with this perfect son and the father looks upon you and smiles with delight. And so if you know the creator of the universe delights in you because of his son, despite what you've done, what you've said, what you've thought, then what does it matter what other people think of you? It still hurts, but it doesn't shape who you are. It doesn't throw you off because you're standing upon the cornerstone. If you're promised what your soul craves, what your soul was and body were, were designed to most fully enjoy, to be in the very presence of your King and God and Creator one day, enjoying a depth of intimacy that even the best of human relationships can only hint at, then the pain of rejection will be healed and the ache of loneliness will be relieved and the sting of criticism will transform into the embrace of the beloved. The last thing Paul prays for is power. It's nothing less than resurrection power. And when we get back to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll take a look at it. Let's pray. Lord, we read it, we hear it. Do we believe it? That in Christ, we are your treasured possession. How and why would the God of this universe treasure me? How and why would the, the, the King of all kings see me as a special possession to inherit? That's what the gospel tells us, Lord. So through that same spirit of wisdom and revelation, I guess this is what Paul was praying for. We also pray, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see you, to know you better, to know that this is true. You delight in us because of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.